How are we all doing? Is this like the most beautiful, crazy, amazing spring? Hello, are you? <laughs> Is this a great spring morning? Oh, man. The Lord's already been preaching this morning, big time to me anyway. It's just beautiful. So Donna and I, we, we live in Temesco Valley right down here, right? And we've had quite a year. We've had fire that we got evacuated from. We've had floods. It's been crazy. And you know what? It's just a little echoey, so I'm going to bring this down just a little bit, see if that helps. And you know what? What I really need right now is to pray. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much, God, that you display your glory throughout your creation, Father. What a display we've been seeing these past few weeks of of just your incredible wisdom and intelligence and beauty and might and power. And I just praise you for that. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear the plans you have for us. In your son's name, amen. All right, so fire, flood, right? Our entire mountain has been wiped out. The fire burned right down to the edge of our development. We got evacuated. And then all winter long, we've been getting evacuation notices from Riverside County for our neighborhood. And it's been crazy. And then, so on this side of our house, the mountains are just desolate. And then on this side of the house are this set of hills that are normally just brown and ugly and desolate. And just suddenly, they have just exploded in color. And we're just, I was just talking with my brother Jim here about just... It's crazy. I mean, just amazing how beautiful all these flowers, the whole hill is like rust and green and purple and just beautiful. And people, I mean, Instagram is creating chaos in Elsinore right now. I'll just tell you, right this very moment, there are about 10,000 people down there trying to find a parking place so they can go meander through the posies. It's like crazy. And it just struck me this morning how, how God is, you know, how he can just take this this desolate hill, and then just make this amazing tourist attraction. We were just talking, Jimmy and I were just talking, I think next year we're going to, Jimmy's going to open up like a food stand, and I'm thinking I'll open up like a, a Jeep tour company, right? But isn't it that God's way that he can just so suddenly go from a season of destruction and fire and flood to this amazing tourist attraction that all of the world seems to be trying to get to right now. I don't think I'm making it home today. I may have to just spend the night in one of your old houses. One of your, one of your corona, how do you say it? Coronians? One of your coronians I may be staying with, yeah. So we are continuing in Isaiah, and this is a really interesting chapter. We're going to be in chapter 18, and as much of Isaiah is, this is another very poetic passage it's actually, the poetry in this passage is really strong. You could, even in the English, you can really sense the, the, some of the beauty and the starkness and the contrast of this, of this poem. It's, it's quite beautiful. So let's go. Let's go get in there. Verse, chapter 18. I'm going to start with the first section, verse 1 through 4. Isaiah says, Ah, land of the whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea, in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Doesn't that sound like a lyric to a song? 
whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, all who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountain, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear, for thus the Lord said to me, I will quickly look from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. All right, what is, this, what is he talking about? So often poetry can be kind of obscure. And of course, we're not living in Isaiah's time and we're not living in, in uh, the, the Near East. So what, what's going on here? Just to break it down a little bit, he says, the land of warring wings. Well, what's the land of warring wings? It goes on to say that it's a land that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Okay, the rivers of Cush are the headwaters of the Nile. So I have to do this in mirror, if I can do this mirror-wise. So yeah, okay, so Israel's here, eastern side of the Mediterranean, right? And then you have Egypt down here, and then the Nile River, and the deltas up here at the top of Egypt. And then as you go south to the headwaters of Egypt, you get close down into northern Sudan, okay? The, that's the area of Cush, okay? Beyond the region of Cush is Ethiopia. So what God is, who, the nation that God is addressing here is Ethiopia, which, how, when was the last time you saw Ethiopia enter into an Old Testament passage, right? It's, it's a land that's very far removed from the immediate ongoing drama of the of the Fertile Crescent, you know, we're used to talking about Syria and Babylon and, and the land of Ur and the Canaanites, et cetera, et cetera. But when was the last time we talked about Ethiopia? But in this passage, really interesting, talking about a nation that's pretty far removed, Ethiopia. And at this time, at the time that, that Isaiah writes this prophecy, Ethiopia, the king of Ethiopia, has actually conquered Egypt. So there's an Ethiopian king ruling over Egypt at this time, right? So this is a big, strong, powerful nation that is actually ruling over Ethiopia, ruling over Egypt, and ruling over the Nile Valley. And of course, the Nile Valley is known for its insects, lots of locusts, lots of insects, lots of warring wings, right? So the land of warring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. So this Ethiopian king, this Ethiopian nation that is now ruling over Egypt is sending ambassadors out, okay? And it says, go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. So what this is saying is, okay, this nation that's land is divided by this great river Nile is sending out these ambassadors and to understand what's happened, the, the sort of geopolitical context here, this is a big, strong, conquering nation, right? It says, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. So their biggest enemy now that they've gotten this big is Syria, Assyria and Syria. So you've got Ethiopian Egypt looking, sizing up Syria, and we've been talking about Syria a lot, because what, Syria has been coming down and invading Israel, is going to invade Judah and take over Judah. So look who's in between Syria and Egypt, the people of God, right? They're caught right in the middle of all this, and Assyria is moving on God's people, moving on Judah. This conquering empire what they're trying to do is they want Judah to ally with them and go against Assyria. So this empire says, hey, join with us, align yourselves with us, 
and we'll deal with Assyria together, okay? So a couple, couple points I want to make here as we go through this passage. There's really sort of four main principles I want to focus on. And you'll notice in your bulletin, by the way, I put a little insert, or I didn't, some great helpers, put a little insert in the bulletin. And you can use that as your notes today, but really it's for later on. Sometime this week, grab that and go through this series of exercises that I've outlined there, okay? But for now, just if you want, you can use that piece of paper for notes. But you'll notice there's going to be a series of exercises, and I'll reference them as we go through this, and then you can work on those exercises on your own, okay? So first principle I want to mention, coming out of verses 1 through C, God's saying, look, I know you have great plans. You great nation, you're, you're powerful, you're conquering, and you've got all these great plans, and you want to form an alliance with Judah, and you want to go up against Assyria and take Assyria. I know, I get it, you got great plans, right? And I think the application for us is we have great plans for our own life, right? And we have plans to rock it in some way or another. Even short-term plans, you have things you want to accomplish this week, you have long-term plans that you really want to be successful in. Some of us, we're thinking about, you know what, I have plans for my retirement. I want to have this certain particular goal. I want, to make, I want to have this certain amount of retirement. I have plans for this. Some of us have plans to go to the right college and get the right grades to get to that right college. Some of us have plans of, that are involving big change, possibly moving or shift, making some big shift in our life, right? We all have plans. And God's saying, look, I, I get it. I know that you have plans, Right? But then notice in halfway through verse 3, it says, and actually also notice this too, at the beginning of verse 3, it says, all you inhabitants of the world. So he starts off by addressing this nation, right? But then he expands out to all the nations of the world. And we see this over and over and over again, Isaiah, this multiple level approach that God takes with prophecy where he speaks to a specific situation, but then expands out to everyone, to the whole world. So he says, all you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, I know you got great plants, right? But look at this. When a signal is raised on the mountain, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. And what God's saying here to us, saying, look, I know you got great plants. I know you have all kinds of plants. I know you may have plans to be very successful. I know you have plans that might be over, completely overwhelming to you. But pay attention, I have plans too. In fact, my plans trump your plans. Pay attention, it's coming a day and there are days where I raise a signal on the mountain. There are days when I blow the trumpet. Are you listening? Are you looking? Are you seeing that I have plans? Verse 4 says, For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Isn't that interesting contrast? On one hand, he says, you know, when a signal is raised on the mountain, look. When a trumpet is blown, real loud, like, you know, signal, trumpet, look, are you listening? And then what does he say about himself? I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of force. I'm barely perceived. You can hardly see me. But are you paying attention? Are you listening? Will you look? 
The world just goes on, lives its life, has all these great plans, and so often they're missing the plan, the great plan that I have for the world. Right? So God is saying, I know, I know your plans, you know, and I know that you, you want a rocket, but I have plans too. I am quietly watching. I am barely seeing. And I will rock, and I have great plans. All right? So continuing in verse 5, what is God's plan? What is the plan, the big plan? Verse 5, for before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. All right, so what's he saying here? Since we're not in an agrarian culture, let, let me kind of paint a little bit of a picture for you. When it's getting close to harvest time, there's great expectation in the community. Everything gets, everything, the whole year is orientated around harvest time. Everything you do all year long, if you're, if you're a farmer, is geared toward that one brief window of harvest time. And that's the, the window that you're looking forward to. But notice this. He says, before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape. So you should, normally you would, you know, you, you plant your seed in, in the winter, early spring. If you're a wheat farmer, like my, my family used to be, then you plant in the fall and the, it stays in the ground during the winter. And then the spring, it starts to spring up. And then you let it grow all the way up through spring and through the summer. And then in the fall, you harvest it. You cut it, right? What he's saying is at the time when the flowers finish the bloom and the grape is just starting to grow, boom, I'm harvesting. Why does he say it that way? What does that mean? What God is saying is I am suddenly going to harvest. I'm going to harvest before you expect it. I'm going to harvest when everybody is just living out their life, working their plans. In the midst of all that, I'm just going to, boom, I'm going to harvest in a very unexpected way, almost like all of a sudden we're just mobbed down there in Temescal Valley. It's just, I didn't, nobody planned for that. The, the city of Elsinore is freaking out. The mayor is like, well, we've organized a shuttle to, so you can park over at the outlet and then take a shuttle over there. And it, it, I don't, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> we'll see how, what happens today. But it's just suddenly... Right? Jesus says this so, so clearly in, in the midst of his Olivet Discourse, which is a very interesting passage in itself. But I'm, we're just going to read one real brief section of it. It's in Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. And, and Jesus is talking about the last day, final judgment, the final harvest. Okay? And Jesus says on, in verse 36, But concerning that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what Jesus is saying is there is God is going to harvest when nobody expects it. Just as in the days of Noah, nobody thought the world was going to end. And they would look at Noah and like, dude, what? you're building an aircraft carrier out in the middle of nowhere. What are you doing? No one expected that. But then all of a sudden it started to rain. And they all perished, except for those who were saved by faith, by getting into the ark, which namely was Noah's family, right? And Jesus is saying it's going to be the same way in the last day. There's going to be no preamble. There's going to be no, no, ex, no one's going to have an expectation. They're going to be thinking, even us as believers are thinking, well, no, the harvest is still, you know, this has to happen, this has to happen first. They have to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem before, before this can happen. I don't think that's true. I think what Jesus is saying is, look, nobody expects it. And as believers, oftentimes we can think, oh, you know, the harvest is still out there. It hasn't got, quite got bad enough yet. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't know the day, the hour. And by the way, it's probably going to happen sooner than you expect. When you're thinking of the harvest is going to be in fall, the harvest is going to be late spring, early summer. So what do we do with that? I think the key takeaway is we need to wake up, right? We need to understand Jesus. And I'm not just saying this for effect. I'm saying this as reality. The reality is Jesus could return today, this morning, right now. We could right this moment find ourselves in, with Christ in paradise, this very moment. And I know that there's a lot of different sort of eschatologies within the Bible-believing Christian church, okay, for some of us, we tend to be on the futurist point of view, maybe pre-trib futurist, meaning we're going to be raptured, and then there'll be a seven-year tribulation, and then final judgment, and then eternal kingdom. And if, if that's where you're at, that's cool. There's a lot of Bible-believing teachers that teach that, you know, and, and that's great. Understand that that rapture could happen this very moment, right now, okay? If you're more like me, kind of my idealist, millennial kind of perspective, then God's rapture judgment happens right, could happen right this moment, right? Either way, whatever your eschatology is, whether it's, it's a rapture in, in the beginning of the trip, rapture in the mid, rapture at the end, or rapture, judgment, new kingdom, all simultaneously, wherever you're at on that time scale, the point is it goes down when we're not expecting it, when we're working our own plans on our own life. Amen? So what do we do with that? We need to wake up. We need to have the mindset, have the attitude that this is a very temporary life. I mean, even just thinking about your own life and your own life expectancy, you got to know it's, temp- it's very temporal, right? I mean, if you're a teenager, of course, you think you live forever. But for those of us who are, who are older, we recognize that, right, this life is short, okay? But it could be much, much shorter than we expect. And for this world, thinking of this world globally, this world is not going to expect it. It will not be ready for it. What do we do with that? We need to be ready for it. And we need to share with others and explain, hey, this life is, this is a sinking ship. We live on the Titanic. And much of what you're doing is rearranging the deck chairs. Understand, there's only one life, and his name is Jesus, right? 
All right, so we need to wake up. Are you spiritually asleep? Are you a believer, but you're kind of just so focused on your own plan that you can't hear the trumpet? You can't see the banner that God has raised up in front of you? If you're an unbeliever, are you, are you dead spiritually? Do you have no idea what I'm talking about right now? If you are, I'm telling you, there's only one way of salvation, only one way to be saved from the wrath that is coming. And the wrath is not coming in some long, distant future. The wrath is coming when we do not expect it. And it's a qualitative versus quantitative issue, right? Jesus could come today. He could come a 1,000 years from now. But qualitatively, he is coming as imminent. The character of his coming is imminent. The apostles lived and preached and practiced their faith with the idea that Jesus' coming was imminent. Their whole attitude and their approach to life was based on the idea that Jesus is right here. He is, gonna, he is coming. He, his, the character of his coming is right here, right now. And we need to live that way. Because, by the way, that's reality. And it could, the, in terms of the temporal time, it could, it could be today. It could be a thousand years from today. But the character of it, the aspect of it, it is right here, right now. Amen? And there are people all around us who are perishing. There are eternal souls all around us that are just going down with the ship. Let's continue on, verse 7. Chapter 8, Isaiah 18, verse 7. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. This is so beautiful. Notice at the beginning of this, this, this nation, the same phrase, this, this nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide. This nation is sending emissaries out to, say, to tell people, hey, join us. Join our conquering kingdom so that, and we'll conquer the world together. We'll be awesome, right? Join us. Align with us. And what happens at the end? This conquering kingdom winds up going to the people of God, going to God's kingdom and offering tribute. This kingdom, rather than Judah going to this kingdom to support this kingdom, this kingdom is ultimately going to come to Mount Zion, the place of God. The reference to Mount Zion, by the way, that Mount Zion was Jerusalem, and Mount Zion became a euphemism or a shorthand way of saying where God is. You know, God's temple is in Jerusalem. That's where God is. That's where he dwells. So this people, this, this people from this land that's far away, one day is going to come and give tribute. Is They're going to honor God in his temple, in his country, in his city, right? Versus vice versa, as it started out in the beginning. Do you see that? See how it turns, the, how the table turns? Very interesting. So, Again, what does that have to do with this? When was this fulfilled? And, and, and as we keep saying, prophetic fulfillment happens in layers. It's not like, okay, God says this is going to happen, fires a missile in time, and then boom, it lands at this point in time and blows up. That's not how God works in his prophetic messaging. What he does is he gives us prophecy, and it has application for Isaiah. It means something to the people that Isaiah is speaking to. It means something... At the time that Jesus was walking around this world, 
It means something to us right now today, and it will mean something ultimately and finally on that last day of judgment. Okay? And what it means to Isaiah at his time is, hey, you know what? You're being threatened by Assyria. You've got Ethiopian Egypt trying to align with you to counter Assyria. And God's saying, it's just a bunch of noise. All right? Everybody's got their plan. Everybody wants to conquer something. It's all a bunch of noise. Look for me. Listen to me. I've got the plan. Okay? Don't get yourself all aligned with this big nation because they're awesome or that nation because they're awesome. Look to me. Align yourself with me. Listen to my trumpet. Look to my banner. And watch what I'm going to do. There's going to come a day where this world's over. It's done. And I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Right? Do you want to be aligned with that? you want to be part of that? Do you want to join that party? I know I do. It's another New Testament passage, second chapter of Revelation that really speaks to this, I think, very powerfully. The second to last chapter, chapter 21. And again, we'll just look at a brief segment of this chapter, starting in verse 22. And the author says, And I saw, and I saw no temple in the city. He's describing the new heavens and the new earth. And John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Think about that. The new creations, the new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, it won't have a little building, a little temple. But the whole city is a temple. God's presence is throughout the entire world. That is the temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay, a couple of things I want to point out here. First of all, notice that its gates are wide open, okay? And that all the peoples, all the nations will bring all their wealth into the city, all right? So heaven, the new heavens and the new earth is one of the most inclusive places in the universe. Actually, it's a whole new universe and it happens to be the most inclusive universe God has ever made. Think about every nation, every tongue, every ethnic group, every political system, every, every type of person will bring all the best of their culture, of their ethnic background, of their experience in this world. They'll bring the best of that into the new heavens and new earth. Heaven is incredibly inclusive. But also notice this. Heaven is incredibly exclusive. Notice the last line. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah? So good news is heaven is incredibly inclusive, and you are invited. Bad news is no. Bad news is nothing unclean will enter in it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Anybody here done anything detestable or false in their life? 
Yeah, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. <laughs> right? I have. Right? Anything done, anybody done anything untrue? You ever lie? Tell a little, little white lie? I love the way we minimize our sin, right? A little white lie. <laughs> that means we're excluded. That's bad news. And I think so often we move right past that too quickly. And I think this morning I just feel like the Lord is saying, look, think about this for a moment. Stop for a moment. Before you jump to, oh, I have salvation in Christ, right? I think most, almost everyone would just, oh, I have salvation. Think about this for a second. Because of who we are, because of our selfish nature, because of our sin nature, our destiny was eternal damnation. Our destiny was was these nations in Isaiah. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. That was our destiny. That is our destiny. Think about that. All of eternity. Jesus describes hell as either total darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth or just this ongoing continuous burning with smoke going up forever and ever and ever. That's our destiny. That's what we deserve, right? But, praise the Lord, we have that last, very last verse in there. What does it say? But only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your, your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life? You have this incredibly inclusive, exclusive new heavens and new earth to live in forever throughout all eternity. Amen? Scripture says that we draw strength from encouragement, the will and the power to keep pushing through and dealing with our plans of getting all upset and all in disarray by understanding the joy of our salvation. And I think it's really important for us to constantly remind ourselves the joy that we have in our salvation. And one of the ways you get to the joy of knowing the one way is you get to the joy of your salvation is recognizing what your destiny was or is apart from Christ, right? Our destiny apart from Christ is an eternity of darkness and weeping and gnashing teeth. That's our destiny. And yet Christ, who said, who had the attitude that his own godhood was not something he needed to grasp and hang on to, but rather he emptied himself and came into this world and gave his life for each one of us that we might enter in to this amazing, beautiful, eternal kingdom forever and ever. Do we have plans? Do you have plans this morning? Do you have plans for today? I think my plans are, are awash because I don't think I'm getting home. Right? But I'm telling you, God has deeper, richer, greater plans for your life. And his plans include sometimes things that come very unexpectedly and sometimes things that come in a way that are very scary and very overwhelming and very frightening and very painful. Sometimes that's the case. But will you look to his banner? Will you listen to his trumpet and understand He's got a greater life for you. He has eternity for you. He has the eternal kingdom for you. And it is imminent. I'm telling you, it is right here, right now. And we need to live 
in the light of that. We need to live thusly. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. And I mentioned you got a sheet of little exercises. And I want to do this last exercise, and then I'll close in prayer at this exercise. So if you look at your little sheet, it says Guest of Honor Exercise 18.7. And if you're comfortable with it, close your eyes. If that feels a little too weird, then I don't know, look at the ground or look at the ceiling, whatever, whatever you want to do, whatever, whatever will help you concentrate, okay? But in, as you as you're close your eyes, in your mind's eye, picture the new Jerusalem. It's a perfect garden. It makes that amazing feel the poppies south of here look like the ghetto, okay? It's a beautiful picture in your mind's eye, this amazing, beautiful garden, and it's a garden city. It's a city that's just filled with beauty and, and light and what river, silver, what clear water, and, and all of that is just filled with the presence and the glory of God. You can feel God the way that you feel the sun on your face. It's just just beautiful and rich, and you can just feel the warmth of the Lord covering all over you. And now picture that city filled with all believers from all times and all nations, giving God all the very best and most honorable wealth God has bestowed on every time, culture, and nation. Picture people from Africa Picture people from the steppes of Russia, from China, from Southeast Asia, from all over the world with all their rich tapestry of culture entering into this amazing, amazing garden city, praising and celebrating the Lord because they found faith in Jesus. Lord God, all we can say is, ah, You are awesome. Father, we love you so much. We thank you so much for this precious salvation, Lord. This ticket that you have given us out of this fallen, broken world and into beauty, peace, joy, reverence, love, graciousness. Father, all the fruit, God, that you desire for us will be ours in you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for that. God, give us that mind, God, that we would walk in your presence and the eminence of your kingdom, Lord, that we might display it, that we might share it, that we might feel it in the deepest part of our guts, Father. In your son's name, amen.